morning we continue in our series entitled You Belong to God. And this is the fourth in a, a series, and I would invite you to you'll uh, take one of these out if you so desire. You have a, a insert here, and this, uh, these are notes from this morning. And if that helps you to follow along, you'd like to take notes, uh, that's uh, a good thing to do. I recently read that after hearing a sermon on sin and the judgment of God upon sinners, that a man stood up and asked Jonathan Edwards, the 18th century preacher uh, from New England, but sir, is there no mercy? To which Edwards replied, yes, but you'll have to come back next week for that. <laughs> well, they did preach rather long sermons back in those days. But Edwards knew that the good news of God's mercy, which is simply this, that God does not give us what we deserve. And the good news of God's grace, meaning that God does, in fact, give us what we do not deserve, that the good news of God's mercy and grace is good news indeed. It is, it is not just good news, it's great news. And I would even go so far as to say, without fear of contradiction, it is the best news that you will ever, ever hear. But it is only good to those who first know and really grasp the bad news. Until you understand the bad news, you're really not going to get the good news at all. And two weeks ago, I preached on the subject of God, sex, and brokenness. Well, that sermon was pretty much all bad news, wasn't it? Those of you who are here will recall. And, and as with all sin and disobedience in this area of life, uh, what, what leaves us is with, with broken selves. We, I mentioned broken health the STDs that continue to, to uh, proliferate in our society, broken families, broken identities, broken children, particularly those who are forced into prostitution, broken minds that are addicted to porn, broken hearts of those who just simply find themselves scared and disillusioned and alone and bitter. All of these casualties of the sexual revolution of the 1960s that just continues to, to, uh, to move ahead. This morning, I come bearing good news. And that good news is that in Christ Jesus, there is healing for all of our brokenness, even sexual brokenness. For as it says in Romans 5:20, where sin abounds, grace much more abounds. And I pointed out that all of these expressions of brokenness that I mentioned, just like all of our brokenness in life, in body, soul, and spirit, are really symptoms. They're not the cause of our being broken so much as they are symptoms of a greater problem, namely our brokenness with God. Well, how did we get that way? How, do we, how, did, how did our relationship with our maker get so broken? Well, two ways, actually. First of all, we're sinners by birth. We saw two weeks ago that our ancient ancestors, Adam and Eve, fell out of favor with their creator by doing the one thing that God told them not to do. And on the surface, it may seem to you like, well, I mean, what was the big deal about that? eating a piece of fruit, right? What's the big deal? But as the late R.C. Sproul describes it, theirs was an act of, as he puts it, cosmic rebellion. That's my Sproul imitation, for those of you that don't know it. And that's exactly what it is. It's an act of cosmic rebellion. And we, their descendants, inherit this bent, this inclination, if you will, to live life on our terms. Not on what God had said, but on what we want. And that's, that's in theological jargon known as original sin. And that, that weighty kind of uh, 
uh, concept uh, is best summed up in a bumper sticker that I saw in Florida many years ago. And I haven't seen one since then, but the bumper sticker said this, lead me not into temptation. I can find it just fine all by myself. <laughs> and that's true. That's true of every last one of us. Those laughs are just amens. I, I learned a long time ago. Isn't that right, Dr. Henry? Those, those, those laughs are amens. You, you know what I'm talking about. You get it. And it sums it up nicely. So we're sinners by birth. Not only that, but we're sinners by choice. Isaiah 59 verse 1 says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. That's bad news, isn't it? And Isaiah 53, 6, the passage we just heard this morning read, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. That's, we're all Frank Sinatra. We want to do it my way, right? And that's the essence of sin. More bad news. And that is why Jesus came, to bear our punishment, to take the punishment for our sins. That's the good news. And so Isaiah 53, 6 concludes by saying, and the Lord laid on him, Jesus, the iniquity of us all. And that, beloved, is the good news of the gospel. So I'm speaking to you this morning under the assumption that those of you who are here have embraced this good news, that you have embraced the one who took our sins upon himself, that by faith you are clinging to that gospel as your only hope of salvation, and thus are a child of God, that you are a follower of Jesus, a born-again, made new by the Holy Spirit, washed clean by the waters of baptism, washed in the blood of Lamb, the Lamb child of God. That is, that is where all of our healing begins. And without that, there simply is no real healing. It's just Band-Aids is all it is. And just put a little something on it to make it feel better, but there's no real healing. But even as a child of God, we still sin, don't we? We actually, we, we do. In fact, we're more keenly aware of it as, as children of God, ironically. And when we sin as his children, what does God do? Does he cut us off? Does he cut us out of the will, disinherit us, disown us? No. He does what all good parents do. He says, come here, child. Right? You know that. You know that look. Come here. Come here. And he disciplines us. He corrects us. Our reading from the book of Hebrews earlier made this very clear. There's a clear distinction between discipline and punishment. Let me read that portion again. God is treating you as sons, meaning heirs. God is treating you as real sons, heirs. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you were left without discipline, in which we have all participated, then you were illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they, the earthly fathers, disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he, God, disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. Now, for the moment, he reminds us as if he needs to, all discipline seems painful. Of course it does, rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, discipline is a means to an end, isn't it? It's not just an end. Punishment, punishment is its own end. It's retribution. But discipline is a means to an end, to correct our behavior and to bring us back 
to the right place. That, by the way, is a very good tip for you parents who have minor children still at home. You need to mentally understand that, that you don't punish your child. You discipline your child. You correct them because you want to correct the behavior. And therefore, God, has, he doesn't punish us. Do you know why? Because Jesus took our punishment. That's what all those scriptures we read this morning are about. That the chastisement that brings us peace was placed upon him. So Christ took our punishment on the cross uh, for us. But as his children, God will allow us to suffer the consequences of our disobedience, albeit tempered with mercy and always with the promise that we can return. We can come back home. Amen? Thus we read earlier in the Jesus parable of the prodigal son, and, and it's so familiar to it. No need to rehash it. But what a powerful, touching scene when the father runs out to meet him. I, I, I couldn't help but think, what, what would a lot of fathers do these days? What, what, what would they do in, in, the, in the movies or TV or whatever, in real life? They'd just be sitting on the, on the porch rocking in their chair, right? And see him coming from afar, and when he finally gets there, say, well, well, well. Look what the cat dragged in. And there'd be a lot of I told you so's, right? And a lot of shaking of the head and a lot of, a lot of negative stuff. That's not what God does. He welcomes him back, even as this father does. He welcomes him back with open arms, but not until what? Until the son returns. The father doesn't go looking for him and drag him back from the bad place, right? From the far country. No. But when the son, what does it say? When the scripture says, when he came to himself, sometimes translated, when he came to his senses, he said to himself, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish with hunger. I will arise and go to my father. I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And this humbling of ourselves, this remorseful returning to God is what scripture calls repentance. And that is where all healing begins. All sexual healing begins with repentance. We, we saw that in King David's prayer in Psalm 51. That is a prayer of repentance. You recall he appeals to God for his abundant mercy and his steadfast love, asking God to wash him and cleanse him from his sin. And even though sin brought death to his loyal soldier Uriah, even though it brought corruption and shame to Bathsheba and her family, and even though it brought horrific consequences within his own family, he says in his prayer to God in verse 4, against you, against you God, and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. And so, so it is with our sins as well. And I say this because so many people these days look at, 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 at uh, sexual sins and so forth as just nobody's business, as if to say, well, I'm not hurting anybody as long as nobody gets hurt. That's how we define sin and often in our culture. And I'm afraid many Christians have come to define it that way. Well, sin is something that brings harm to others. Well, it often does. It often does. But the, the, the sinfulness of sin is not that it has harmed others. Although that's part of it, the real sinfulness of sin is that we have sinned ultimately against God. And why is our sin ultimately against God? Because we belong to him. That's the theme of this series. You are not your own. You are not your own. We are his because he is our creator, for one thing. He has given us the very gift of life. I mean, the only reason you're sitting here this morning is a gift. It is, it is by God by God's goodness and love and grace that you are even alive and you're sitting here this morning. But we are also doubly his 
because Christ in dying for us has redeemed us. Now the word redeem is is a biblical word. It's a New Testament concept that was taken from the slave trade of that day. Indentured servants were those who, in fact, in my ancestors, among my ancestors, I had a number who were indentured servants. That's how they got to this country. They could ill afford the expensive uh, passage from, from England to America. It, it was a ridiculously expensive proposition. And so they would, they would enter into an agreement with a wealthier person who would, upon arriving in America safely, they would become this person's indentured servant for a certain length of time until they could work off the debt. Well, it was a similar thing in biblical times. Uh, there, were, there were those who were indentured servants, and some of them would remain that way. But someone could come along and pay the price for this person's redemption, could actually buy out their contract, as it were. And they would always have to give them more money than was even the asking price, more money than they were worth. Why? So they wouldn't find themselves back into debt and back being an indentured servant. That's a great picture of what God has done for us. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 14, it says this, As obedient children, Peter says, do not be conformed to the former lust, which was yours in your ignorance. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves in all your behavior, knowing that you are not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold. Something, what could be worth more in, in their world than silver and gold, or even in today's world? He says, you were not re- redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your empty, futile, worthless way of life inherited from your forefathers, original sin, but with the precious blood of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. Something more valuable than all the silver and gold on this planet. And that is the precious blood of Jesus Christ because that was the cost, that was the price that Jesus paid for your redemption. So you were his not only by virtue of creation, but by virtue of the new birth. That is, a, that is a very powerful picture of what Jesus did for us at the cross. God's claim on us, his call on our lives, has everything to do with how we express our sexuality. And it's remarkably simple. It is remarkably simple. It's summed up in one word, chastity. That's God's claim on your life. It's a call to chastity, as Peter puts it here, that we no longer be conformed to the former lusts of our life, but rather we live a chaste life. Now, for those who are married, it means commitment to your spouse, to remain faithful physically and mentally to that person for life until one of you dies. Now, for those who are single, it's also very simple. Sum it up in a word, continence. The word continence comes from the Latin contentia, which means a holding back. Continence means holding back bodily functions. That includes expressing our sexuality. And therein is the basis for the healing of our soul and our spirit. It's the foundation for our sexual healing. And here's the connection. Here's the connection. Sexual healing, like all of our healing, is to be found only at the foot of the cross. Why is that? Because in a very practical way, and in a way that that truly arms us, if you will, for the fight, I can trust the one who loves me that much that he would leave his place of supreme honor and glory, become one of us, become a person just like you and I, not just an ordinary person, but one who lived a difficult life. He did not come and live a life of ease and luxury, 
He, he was just like us except sinless. And then died the death of a criminal and a sinner, a horrific death at the, at the end of a long road of torture. Now, someone who loves me that much, I can trust him. That in telling us to live chaste lives, whether single or married, he truly has our best interest at heart. Just like our parents when they discipline us, a parent who truly loves us. And I was very blessed to have parents like that. My father, uh, who meted out most of the discipline, unfortunately, uh, <laughs> I would that it was, you know, just wait till your father gets home. Uh, that, was, that was not good for me, not good for either of us. But, but uh, the discipline is a major uh, factor in our lives, and so it, is, so it is with God. But in telling us to live chaste lives, he has our best interest at heart. Let me put it another, another way. Let me put it in the form of a question. Who do you trust? Do you trust the one who made you? Do you trust the one who knows you better than you know yourself? Do you trust the one who died to restore you? Or do you trust the prince of darkness? Who do you trust? Who are you going to trust? You, those are your two options. You're going to choose, there's no door three. You're going to choose door number one or door number two. And you do that all during your day. The latest version of sexual freedom includes these three elements. First is narcissism. Narcissism. That's our 50-cent word for the day. Narcissism just means it's simply about me. It's all about me. It's all about my life. And what happens in my bedroom is nobody else's business. As long as I'm not hurting anybody, it's none of your business. That's narcissism. Uh, Ken and Phil Ashey wrote an article. It's been a few months back ago saying that even as Christians... It never seems to be, with a lot of Christians, like it's no longer about Jesus, it's about us. And he says, and I love this statement, he says, we become spiritual selfies. <laughs> I mean, that is funny, but it's, but it's not so funny if you think about it. We become spiritual selfies, and all of a sudden, the church becomes all about us instead of being about Jesus and the Great Commission. Narcissistic Christians, that's an oxymoron, isn't it? Those are just two words that don't even belong together. And then the second, second mark of, of the enemy's uh, uh, version of sexual freedom is relativism, which simply means I decide what's right or wrong. And you'll hear things like, well, that may be right for you, but not necessarily for me. Who are you to judge me anyway? After all, the heart wants what the heart wants, right? That's all relativism. And thirdly, hedonism. The pursuit of pleasure at the expense of all else. It's all about pleasure. If it feels good, do it. We live in that kind of culture. We really do. Debbie Boone, some of you will remember, it's been 40 years ago, in 1978, she had a number one hit record called You Light Up My Life. It was so popular it won a Grammy Award for Song of the Year that year. And the last line pretty much covers all three of these. The last line says, it can't be wrong that's relativism, right? When it feels so right, that's hedonism. And why? Because you, you light up my life. That's narcissism. You're lighting up my life. I don't care about your life or anybody else's life. It's all about my life. Well, do you really want to live your life that way? I mean, that makes for a nice, pretty little love song to hear on the radio. But do you honestly want to live your life that way, being a slave to your impulses? your glands, your hormones, your emotions, to the latest fad, the latest trend. Do you really want to live your life that way? I, I, we had a great illustration of this just a couple of weeks ago out in Paulding County. 
Uh, maybe you saw this on the news, where a woman lost her house in an ugly divorce fight. And that's enough to make most people pretty angry, right? But she decided, you know what? If I can't live in the house, nobody's going to live in the house. You know what she did? She torched it, burned the house down. Well, I'm sure that seemed like a good idea at the time. There's only one bad thing about fires. They spread. And this thing spread to other houses. And before they could all get put out, there were three houses totally destroyed, not counting hers, and some 16 houses that were damaged. That went well, didn't it? It's not going to go so well for her. I don't know what happens to somebody. It's, it's all bad. It's all bad. And some of you may be thinking at this point, well, that's all well and good, but it's just too difficult. I just don't think I can do that. The cost is too high. Okay. Well, a couple of things about that. Whoever said following Jesus is going to be easy? Whoever told you that? Jesus never did. Jesus never sugarcoated it. He said in many, many ways, but none is as good, I think, as in Luke chapter 9. He says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily. They all knew what that meant. The cross is a place of pain and suffering, the place of death. Take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? In other words, what Jesus is saying is, yeah, it's not going to be easy. It's, it's, you're, you're taking up a cross daily. But consider the final outcome. Consider the ultimate cost to you either way. You either find life and you gain your soul or you lose your soul. That kind of clarifies things, doesn't it? Furthermore, there's kind of a wonderful irony in this as well because this same Jesus says in Matthew chapter 11, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you what? Rest. Take my yoke upon you. A yoke, for, for some of you may not picture that, that's a wooden device that you use to to tie two animals to, together, so like ox or mules or whatever, they can pull a wagon or pull a, a plow or whatever. It's a burdensome thing. For he says, he says, my burden, uh, uh, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. So what's going on here? I mean, is you say, on the one hand, it's really difficult, it's taking up a cross, but Jesus says, my burden is easy and my yoke is light. Well, consider the, the contrast. Consider the contrast. Proverbs 13, 15 says it best. The way of transgressors is hard. Some of the old prison movies that I watched before, they talk about the hard road. You're on the hard road. You want to get on the hard road? Fine. Then listen to the prince of darkness. You want, to, you want a, a different way of life that it's not going to be easy at all times either. But not only is the end game infinitely better but you find once you pick up that load once you pick up that burden that it's not that difficult and do you know why because you find someone else helping you with the burden and that person is jesus through the power of the holy spirit god does not ask us to go it alone no and jesus has gone on before us anyway jesus knows exactly what we're dealing with that's why we read in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. Jesus knows what you're going through, but one who in every respect 
was tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace, that we may find mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So in the struggle, as you struggle with this in your own personal life, you have an ally. You have an ally who knows exactly what you're going through and one who is there to help and bid you, come to me as your high priest and I will, I will give you help. Now there's some of you sitting here thinking, or maybe you've never thought about it before, do you mean to tell me that Jesus was tempted sexually? Yeah, that's exactly what I'm saying. I mean, the body that he took on was a man's body. And he had testosterone coursing through the blood of his veins. And if you don't believe that he was ever tempted in these areas, then I guess you don't believe in the incarnation. You believe he was just some kind of phantom or some kind of angel that came here that didn't experience all the things that we do. One of the enemy's many lies is that sexual expression is a need. And, and I, I don't mean to split hairs with you on something like this, because I know we use, that, we use that in our language and it's a common way to refer to it. I'm not... I don't go around correcting people about that. But strictly speaking, sexual expression is not a need. It is a very powerful force. Your sexuality is very much a part of who you and I are. You will be a woman throughout all eternity or a man throughout all eternity, whatever you happen to be right now. But expressing that in sexual activity is not a need. You have four basic physical needs. And they're real simple, aren't they? Air, food, water, and shelter. Without all four of those, with some degree of regularity, you're going to die. You're going to die, right? And there's one that I've left out, and what is that? Anyone? Anyone? Anyone guess? Love. Love. That's a need. You simply cannot live without it. We are relational creatures. We simply cannot live. We got our slides. There we go. Yeah, okay. That's my comic relief slide for the day. We simply cannot live without meaningful human contact. And my line for this is, go without that long enough, you become Tom Hanks, having an argument with a volleyball named Wilson. And as much as that causes us to smile, this is, this is what happens to people who don't have love in their life, who have no one who loves them or no one that they can love. We need to be loved. Perhaps even more importantly, we need to love. At the Last Supper with the apostles, after dismissing the traitor Judas, our Lord tells the eleven, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. These are his parting words. These are some of his, his last words to them. By this, all, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love one for another. Do you realize what Jesus just told him? He is saying, in effect, the watching world, the pagan world out there, I'm giving them the right to determine the genuineness of your claim to be my followers based on one thing, and that is whether you really love each other or not. And by love, not the warm fuzzy. No, no, no. Not just mere affection, but love like he is fixing to demonstrate the next day at the cross. John Piper, great Baptist preacher and, and pastor, says there's two kinds of attachments in our life. There are, there are those that either heal or destroy. And he says this, God provides us with numerous means of healthy, wholesome, life-giving attachments. The world would have us to believe that that's impossible without expressing it sexually. 
But no, there's marriage, there's parenting, there's family, there's friends. Oh, and there's Christ as well. The field of psychology confirms that the more we surround ourselves with God's definition of life-giving attachments, the more mentally healthy we are and the more satisfied with life we become. By contrast, Piper says, the enemy offers us fake attachments through things like images on a computer screen or a TV screen, a movie screen, a tryst outside of marriage. As we yield to these temptations, our characters are demeaned, our brains become addicted, we lose the ability to maintain normal, healthy relationships with real people, and that's why so many marriages end in divorce. Our real attachments have been replaced by these fake attachments. Thus, the gospel offers healing, not just for the past, but for the future, help for our future as well. Beloved, and you hear me call you beloved a lot of times from, from this place. It's not just a habit. <clears throat> when I'm referring to you as beloved, what I'm saying to you is you are loved of God. You are God's beloved. That means this, that, that God loves you more than you could ever possibly fathom. I don't believe even in eternity we will ever, ever fathom how much God truly loves us. And I just don't, I don't mean that just collectively, like he loves, you know, all the little children of the world and that kind of thing. As true as that is, but that you are absolutely unique. You're a unique creation of God. God knows you better than anybody on this planet. He knows you better than everyone, and he loves you still. And he has made you and I, among other things, to be an instrument of that love to those around you. Quick story. And I'm done. D.L. Moody was a pastor in Chicago back in the 19th century. He had a great church there, a very, very large church. And a man in Chicago noticed that there was a little boy who would, would Bible in hand, would walk every Sunday, regardless of the weather, regardless of the conditions, he would walk to church, or presumably to church. And, and, but he noticed that, that it was obviously a long walk for this kid. And one day he stopped and said, where do you go to church? And the little boy said, well, I go to Mr. Moody's church. And he said, well, why do you go all the way there? I mean, it's a long ways. He said, you probably go past a dozen churches between here and there. You know what the little boy said? He thought about it and he said, well, sir, you see, they just have a way of loving a fellow over there. That's part of my vision for this church. This is a loving family, but my, my vision, my desire for this church is that this truly be a place where you are loved. Because there's not a person here who doesn't need that. We desperately need that. And there's not a person here who does not need to love as well because those who are greatly loved are those who first love others greatly. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.